The Incomparable, number 317, September 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable on September 8th. It is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And I didn't want to let that go by without us doing an episode about a Star Trek subject. We've covered a lot of Star Trek over the years on The Incomparable. Uh, I picked a movie to, to talk about that is one of my favorite Star Trek movies, and we hadn't done an episode about it yet, so we're going to do it now. It is 1996's Star Trek First Contact, yes. or as I keep explaining to everybody who asks me which one that is, the Borg One. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me to talk about the Borg One is a a, 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 a packed all star panel of people. Dan Morin, hello. The line must be drawn here, Jason. No, somebody had to say it. Uh, you you were first. Uh, Brianna Wu is back, of course. Uh, we like to have her around when we talk Star Trek. Fire facers. <laughs> all right. <laughs> David Lore, hello. The line must be drawn here. You have to do <laughs> we, it. Like, we we already did that. Joe Rosenstiel is here. Yeah. Uh, yes. This far, no further. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Scott McNulty, proprietor of Random Trek, and another uh, Star Trek uh, fan that we like to have on these. Hi. It's like we're on some kind of Star Trek. Mm. <laughs> You're astronauts on a Star Trek of some sort. And he hasn't ever been on the uh, the Incomparable before, but he was on Random Trek, and I'm very happy to have him with us. It's Jamel Bowie. Hello. Hello. I don't. I don't have a quotation from the movie, but... <laughs> That makes you better than all no. of us. It's cool. <laughs> How about that Adam, Adam Scott on The Defiant being like, they're hailing us or whatever it is that he says. Taking a nice sigh of relief when his boss says they don't have to commit suicide. Yeah, that's right. Well, when Worf is your captain, you got to wonder if it's a good day to die includes you, right? It's a hard posting working for Worf, guys. <laughs> All right, so First Contact, uh, written by Ron Moore and Brandon Braga, from, uh, who were Star Trek writers on Star Trek The Next Generation and the follow-on series, directed by Jonathan Frakes, TV's Commander Riker himself. And uh, it's obviously the Next Generation cast with a few guest stars. Uh, Alfred Woodard is Lily, James Cromwell is Zephram Cochran, a character from the original series, um, who, in a weird episode of the original series, where he <laughs> falls in love with a cloud. Anyway. We've all been there, Jason. <laughs> and uh, Alice Krieg, because the Borg Queen. So three great, I think, guest stars in this one, too. Guest stars. If a movie can have guest stars, but it's a based on a TV show, so I guess it can. Um, I thought maybe we'd break the movie down uh, to start into the three different threads that... Um, that this movie goes in because this movie really does break into three plot threads fairly quickly. The movie starts with a Borg attack. Well, I guess it really starts with Picard dreaming about, <laughs> about dreaming about uh, being assimilated by the Borg. And then he wakes up, but it's still a dream, but then he wakes up again and gets a call <laughs> that the Borg are attacking. Uh, and, and uh, that, that sets Picard off on his journey because they basically say, no, 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 don't come. <laughs> we don't want you. <laughs> we don't, like you we don't trust you because you were compromised. Uh, when you were assimilated by the Borg. But, uh, of course, Picard disregards orders. He rushes in. He saves the day because his knowledge of the Borg actually helps him blow up the Borg ship. But uh, a, a little sphere emerges from the Borg ship and goes back in time to assimilate Earth in the past. And that's your 
that's where the story begins. They pick up Worf from the Damage Defiant because contractually Worf should be in the movies, but he's on Deep Space Nine, so they got to work that out. <laughs> and so they're like, "Yeah, the Defiant. It's it's good, nice little ship, little, little." Uh, and then we're back in the past, and it's uh, it's it's a like a day before uh, the first launch of the Zeppelin Cochran's warp ship, meeting uh, the, the aliens who are not identified until the last scene for a first con. Con, uh, contact experience and at that point the 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 movie breaks into three we have picard we have data talking to the board queen and we've got the stuff that happens on earth where zephram cochran is dealing with some members of the crew and the weight of history the, the one thing that that's interesting about this that sets it apart from pretty much all the other next generation movies at least is if this were an episode of the show it would be a mythology episode right because it connects to a very discreet portion of the show and in some ways it's amazing that this works because it seems like a hard sell right that you have have to have seen these you know basically these two particular episodes of a seven year long show in order to sort of get in and they sort of you know they give you that little flashback at the beginning and you know it's sprinkled throughout here and there but you know you compare that to something like insurrection or nemesis or even generations in which all you really had to know was like okay captain kirk's a guy right like i know who that is <laughs> i mean the closest the closest parallel is really probably to wrath of khan right which was also sort of a callback to an yes. episode of the show um yep. and to me that it's impressive that they got a not only is a mythology you know movie is it made but it it is unquestionably the most successful and the best of these four next generation movies oh yeah it's one of the things i love about this is the economy with which it it starts the story and then just motors through it and the balance between those those various threads uh, you're, you're never sitting there going, what's going to happen next? When is the next scene? It just keeps moving. And, you know, for all the jokes about TV's Riker, he does a nice job directing yep. that yes. and, yeah. and keeping yeah. all the balls in the air. Um, I, I just, I remember sitting in the theater going, this shouldn't be working like this. This is great. Cause I was disappointed by generations. And, and so it was like, wow, they got it right. And they never got it right again, but. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I think something I would say is, you know, when I watched Star Trek Beyond, um, I hated that movie. I'm sorry, I've seen it twice. I've given it a fair shot. Yeah. It's an action movie in space. And what really stands out to me when you go back and watch First Contact is I think most people would agree it's one of the more action-y uh, Star Trek movies with the next generation cast. But what makes it work so much better than I think the um, you know, the reboot has managed to do is the human moments, like the moments with mm. Lily and Picard are really intense and really awesome. And you feel oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Like when, you know, Picard chooses to kill Ensign Lynch, like you feel that. Right? When he turns to the Borg, when Hawk turns into a Borg, like you feel that. And I just think there's a, an acting substance in this film that just doesn't exist in the more recent Star Trek movies. Yeah. They're, they're allowed to have depth. Mm -hmm. And and they've earned that depth, whereas we're just told, oh, this is Kirk and Spock, and, you know, they're great. Well, that's, I mean, once again, the Next Generation movies have seven years of the Next Generation yes. to build up into the characters, <laughs> whereas the reboots have the movies that you've seen, plus, you know, your 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 recollections of previous actors doing different versions of the same characters. So it's, in many ways, even more of a challenge to have that. Right. I mean, with the with First Contact, I think you have... 
a situation where all of the the principals involved have kind of they've they know their characters like the back of their hands at this point they they know you know uh patrick stewart knows who picard is in a very intimate way um and when you add that to a screenplay that really is designed to kind of needle down to the cores of these characters you do get something um that you know the best way i can describe it is sort of like a a clean palette cleanser right that like this is these are this is uh in the same way that wrath of khan got to the essence of of the original series characters this is the essence of all of these uh next generation characters and and the the subsequent films i think lose quite a bit of this in, in an attempt to kind of make them more conventional but here um here it is uh, very much apparent. I would also add as a parenthetical that I really enjoyed Star Trek Beyond, but we can have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. I I really enjoyed it too, but that's a whole other. Oof. Well, <laughs> oof. Oof. There's also a surprising amount of, for lack of a better term, fan service in this movie, which is that minor characters from the show appear, like Barkley appears Barkley. in a scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nurse Ogawa appears <laughs> in a scene, like very briefly. I know, just like right, you know, they make sure that almost all those like little recurring characters get a moment or something even if we have new characters thrown in as well and you even have the emergency medical hologram yes yeah and nurse Sogawa gets to do almost as much as dr crusher gets to do in this movie <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> dr crusher at least troy gets to get drunk <laughs> and and one of the earliest times i saw this i mean this is probably about the third or fourth time i saw it i saw it with someone who had never seen next generation but they were just curious because they'd heard all about this. And, oh, the Borg, the Borg. And so they didn't have any of the best of both worlds. They didn't have any of the knowledge of Picard's history with them. And they loved it and, and were able to follow it from just from what was in the movie. And at the end asked me, uh, did they actually do an episode about that? I said, oh, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> yes, they did. Many, many. It's a remarkably efficient screenplay. And I say that when yeah. we were talking about Star Trek Beyond, um, what I said about it was that it, it falls into the trap of having only enough parts to do what it needs to do. And we again, yes. that's a different podcast. Yes. But this is efficient in a different way. This is efficient in that while it's doing these bits of fan service, it's doing them in ways where it's exactly what you need and nothing more. So like the emergency medical hologram, it's a good joke. And everybody who who's seen Voyager is like, hey, it's the EMH. But it's also just a good joke. It's a delaying tactic for Crusher. It's a perfect use of the character. It doesn't linger on it. Uh, Nurse Ogawa is present and she does her thing. Barkley is used in that one scene at, at a moment that we'll get to in a little bit that is very important when you're talking about characters and about the journey that Cromwell has to take as Ephraim Cochran. And then that's it. You know, that's all we needed him for. But it's kind of a pivotal scene. And he's he's the right character to use in that situation. And throughout this movie, I think I could point at other examples of, of some restraint of like they use they know what all the tools are, but they use them with restraint and they get them to do exactly what they need and then that's it and then they, they don't get overused they move on to the next thing so picard let's let's dive into picard a little bit more picard you, you talk about the parallels with star trek 2 um we have moby dick we have a character from an old uh, star trek episode in zephram cochran or if you want to go this way a direct sequel to an old next generation episode in this case <laughs> best of both worlds there's so much uh, uh, rolled into that. And, and this is a story about Picard having his baggage with the Borg and it and 
almost coming to accept that it is what it is and that he has to move past it because it does help him defeat the Borg in the present day uh, when they want to like leave him on the outside. But he he is, has a vendetta against the Borg. And and we see that throughout his... He's only on Earth for a short amount of time. He beams back to the ship. And at that point, he's kind of an action hero, but he is uh, not Captain Picard for a while because he... Not only does he kill uh, Ensign Lynch... Uh, in in the holodeck and kind of Lily is appalled by that but he kills another character very early on who's just been assimilated by the Borg yeah. there's no attempt to mm-hmm. save that character at, yes. at all I mean he he is from the get-go he basically and he says just kill them uh, you know they would thank you I know I would so we get to see Picard really kind of he's messed up until he finally has that final scene with Alfred Woodard where um, she kind of makes him snap out of it and it's I think it's a really amid all the action and suspense and, and and things that we're used to in a in a movie like this it's a really good journey for Patrick Stewart to do more than you know what we saw in best of both worlds basically well it's nice because so many of the episodes I mean TNG was largely very episodic yeah. and even though they didn't spend a ton of time on Picard recovering from you know being assimilated right like that doesn't really come up yeah again. one episode yeah. Which is, I love that episode. <laughs> but traditionally, like, you know, everything resets at the end of the episodes, right? Most of the time, there is some light continuity from episode to episode. And sure, if you look over the course of seven seasons, you see these characters change in some ways. But a lot of it is, you know, reset at the end of the episodes, like watching an old 80s cartoon. Um, and so, you know, having a chance to sort of delve into the psychological thing that was an impact of an earlier episode is what gives it that richness that we don't really get from a lot of the other ones. I mean, they tried something like this in direction you know it has a sort of an idea and a plot and you know there's there's a message sort almost of. there but it's sort of right it doesn't work it fails because that's not really a a question that we were interested in seeing answered what i think really shines uh about first contact is picard and i think it, it just shows how much um more talented an actor he is than the chat <laughs> the chat has that one really good moment when spock dies but i think generally speaking most people People would agree it's just no contest and like we're telling jokes on this podcast about the line must be drawn here but like you can watch that scene and i oh, feel oh, God, all yeah. the it's rage gorgeous. and anger and desperation in the world just bubbling up in me i've seen it a thousand times and it is i mean it's acting and playing off of lily like she is perfectly cast here because she she stands up to him and like that's not something we really see on next generation very much someone that can go toe-to-toe with Picard and I think it's you know it's not a mystery it's just incredible acting and what what's what's really amazing is you know they've used Moby Dick as an analogy in the past but it's Khan Khan is the one who is the Ahab figure and right. this time it's the hero and yeah. and it's also not a good thing right that's the thing that kind of snaps him out of it it's like oh oh <laughs> and you know that is such that is that is such a brave thing to do with their hero and but Stuart can handle it obviously i will say though that in sort of going that route and i think it's i thought i think it and thought it was a very smart choice to sort of make picard our ahab the i think the this movie uh kind of paves the way for the 
explicitly action hero action heroy Picard in the in the subsequent mm. Next Generation movies, which is, I just think is a big misreading of the character. I mean, so my least favorite part of First Contact is the holodeck scene. Um, part of this is because I just kind of hate the holodeck as a conceit, <laughs> but sort of the Picard of Next Generation, I don't think generally would gun down. Um, you know, uh, someone with a Tommy gun in the middle of a holodeck. It just doesn't yeah. doesn't really. That's like a wharf thing to do, right? It doesn't really seem like yeah. the Picard that we know. And even in the context of a story about his PTSD, um, it just doesn't really fit. Uh, and I think I think that's if there's like a, a a flaw here, not a fatal flaw, but something that would I think become a fatal flaw in, in the in the later movies. It's that that like uh, Picard becomes or Patrick Stewart plays Picard as an almost Errol Flynnish character in a, in a way that I'm not quite sure uh, uh, really fits the character that, that uh, Stewart had actually established going into First Contact. Well, here you would argue that he's that he's kind of messed up and that's why he's behaving this way. The problem is if somebody says, oh, that was cool. Let's have him do that again in the next couple of movies. It's like, no, no, no. You've you that then you've really misread this character because he was doing that because he was totally in a bad place and needed to snap out of it. This is not normal Captain Picard because he would never do that. It's it's also not a normal situation. They're not just trying to fight the Borg. They're trying to preserve the existence of the Federation. There's desperation there, too. Uh, I mean, part of that is, uh, you know, Patrick Stewart had uh, read the original, well, an earlier draft of this and had decided that he wanted to be up on the ship and be the action hero doing these things and not down on the planet, which was Mm. the way it was originally written. Uh, So I think it's a, a very different movie having him up there. Uh, it, it, it works for me, especially because he has Lily, uh, as as Brianna had said, uh, as a foil to work off of. And it also helps us as the audience to understand his mind in a way that a niche in Insurrection doesn't accomplish and in a way that nothing in Nemesis accomplishes. <laughs> uh, there is there is no, no other character to bounce off of there really other than he has a couple of asides to troy about you know oh well he understands me or whatever um for shinzo but uh but this this really uh i I feel uh works quite well because she can also extract all of the uh information from picard in a way that uh many of these other characters probably couldn't uh because you know the the next generation characters weren't really supposed to challenge one another like this uh so it 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 works well to have her there to challenge him in that aspect in something that we don't see again uh, repeated in in the following films. Isn't it a great moment where on the bridge Picard basically insult? He dresses down Worf. He basically says, "Go sacrifice yourself," and and goes into the, and then just walks into the ready room. And Alfre Woodard just looks around and she's like, "What the hell are you people doing?" And they're like, "Oh well, he's the captain. We're going to follow his orders," which of course is admirable. And and it's I think <laughs> maybe a little too on the nose, but I like that she says um, to him like maybe they never got stupid orders like this before or whatever she says like to say that of course their loyalty is good normally but you're behaving irrationally but i just like that that because she's not 
a member of the crew, she can call him on it. And that, that is, and she storms in there. And then we get that amazing scene where, which I do, I just love dearly. I love the whole thing. There are things, I, I think we quote that scene weekly. And if it's not a line must be drawn here, it's you broke your little <laughs> ships, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, it's. And, and just the way she undersells that line too. She doesn't make so a big good. deal out of it. It's just, you know, there's that pause and you broke your little ships. It's like, mm. that's the coldest way to do that line. Well, I like the, I mean, in the, it's shot very well as a scene too. It's a, this whole movie is shot very distinctly from the enterprise that we've come to know and love right on the, on the series. Um, cause it's the new enterprise as we've, as <laughs> we've had arguments in the, uh, in our back channel slack <laughs> for a few weeks about what, about <laughs> superior enterprises. So that's great. Um, but you know, it is, it's a, it's a, it's the most advanced ship in the fleet. It's clearly much more of a warship. Um, and you know, the whole thing is sort of darkly lit and it's got, all, you know, a very different and feel to it um and so i i think and and there's a nice like subtle little zoom in on him he talks about we were you know they they do this we fall back they do this we retreat you know and like i love that it's a great shot it's a great delivery by stewart like that whole thing is incredibly well put together um i and i and i think what's interesting about this is that this puts Starfleet on a much more military footing, you know, it feels like. I mean, I was thinking also of just sort of, it's almost a throwaway line, but, um, yeah, Lily calls him, addresses him as soldier at one point. Right. And he doesn't argue with that or make any comment about it, right? Like, even though I think there are a lot of cases where we'd have Star Trek characters like, oh, we're not soldiers. We're really like explorers and scientists. No, in this realm, they're pretty much soldiers. It's even more clever than that, I think, in that there's a scene, the scene where he takes her to the observation lounge and shows her Earth. And it's this beautiful, it's it's such a Star Trek scene. It's such a Gene Roddenberry scene where it's like, no, we don't even have any money in the future. We just worked to better ourselves, the whole thing. And then they go and they emerge into the middle of the, into the bridge and the bat, and the battle planning is going on. And you can see in Alfred Woodard, it's like, oh, so much for idealism, right? Like th- that's the moment yeah. where like the old, the kind the of Star Trek idealism falls away and we're fighting and all the lighting is like red and everybody's got big rifles and there's going to be a fight. And it's a really like, like she, she gets sold Star Trek and then this is what she actually gets. It turns into DS9 there. <laughs> what do people think? So the, the, the big action sequence and it is, it is a, it is an action movie sequence, right? It's like we need the three, com- three, three dealies that need to be turned in order to do the thing that stops. <laughs> the bad guy um and, and, and it, you know it, it is that although there are i think there are a lot of clever things about it the fact that it's on the underside of the saucer that we get the kind of like funny where they're upside down and then we get the shot where we pan up and now we've oriented right side up and there's some anti-grav stuff in it and there's some some punching in spacesuits and Worf uses a borg tube to tie off his spacesuit <laughs> at one point and so I, you know it, it is uh i i really enjoy that scene although i think it goes back to what Jamel was saying about future movies that I enjoy that scene and yet uh, one of the reasons I enjoyed is because at this point we didn't see the next generation do action set pieces like this and now Mm. like Star Trek movies have to be all action set pieces like this so that part of it I don't like but I do kind of enjoy it as ridiculous as it is that they're the three maglock thingies (laughs) that they have to turn and part of of that is also the the sort of like horror aspect the thriller aspect Mm. of Mm -hmm. it 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 makes it slightly different than some of the other uh, action set pieces where they're going up against other kinds of villains. In this particular case, you know, it's more like fighting zombies. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of ignoring you, milling around, doing your thing, and it's like, uh-oh, now you've drawn their attention. Hmm. Uh, so it, it can, 
it, it makes the action scenes play out differently than if there were Romulans doing something on the deflector dish uh, or Remans doing something on the deflector dish. They keep looking up, <laughs> right? Like when they when they do things with the computer, they keep looking up, and you're that moment of like, oh geez. But it doesn't. It's not like if it was a Romulan or something where they would immediately be like calling in people to go attack them. Instead, you're you're kind of waiting for when are they going to come and when are they going to attack the the people who are doing it. Yeah, I want to. I want actually double double down on that because it is. You know, I, I recently. Uh, I, I think I rewatched this maybe a week and a half ago. I've been on this Star Trek kick, rewatching all these movies, um, and I, I think it was a week and a half ago that I rewatched First Contact, and it really did strike me how much, um, especially in the earlier scenes when the Enterprise is being assimilated and crew members are being assimilated and there are shots of crew members, you know, having their limbs replaced, how much it's yeah. a shot like a body horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and how much, you know, cautious, tight, tight spaces, low lighting, claustrophobia. There's the scene where data is, uh, is grabbed from beneath and dragged under. I mean, these are, oh, yeah. th- these are straight up, horror movie scenes the scream and the jeffrey's tube really early on right oh yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah, the first two assimilations we don't even see Uh, for as much as first contact is a a more actiony trek movie i do think that the fact that so much of the action throughout the the film is in this horror style um does make it seem I don't know. It does, makes it seem less actiony. It makes it seem less sort of. It's not. It's not kinetic in a way that say like hmm. the 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 reboots are, and that um that makes a real difference in just the general feel of it. I I really really agree with that. And one of the the core conceits of a horror movie is, you know, horror is generally a, a lower budget genre, right? So you know, not to blast uh, Star Trek Beyond some more, but you know, the scene where <laughs> you know the the Enterprise tips up and they're you know they're flying downhill, or even you know the rescue scene, like it's just an action movie, like someone got carpal tunnel CGIing all the motorbikes around. <laughs> it's not impressive anymore. I think what makes this movie work. And part of it is because it did come in an age before CG had really you know, just freed us or trapped us, like depending on how you see it. But it's it's shot like that scene is kind of low budget. Like they're moving in slow motion on a soundstage, you know, it's lit very carefully. And it's actually a very minimal set for something you're describing as a, as a, you know, an action scene. And I, I firmly believe as a creative person that constraints can actually make your work better. And I think they serve to that in the same Absolutely. Let's pick up the thread about the Borg, and I want to move kind of toward Data and the Borg Queen, but it goes with the the idea of the, the horror movie. Data does get dragged under that door, and then we get a series of scenes um, with the Borg Queen. I think um, more broadly, too, the Borg as a villain, going back to Star Trek II, I, I've... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say later on that that there are scenes with Data and the Borg Queen that actually remind me of Goldfinger, <laughs> where, when yeah. he's tra- when he's tied down and they're having like oh, repartee. Yeah. It actually does remind me of that. But do you expect me to talk? 
No, I expect you to die. Um, I expect you to assimilate. Um, <laughs> but the uh, but the thing about about Star Trek Two is it has Khan, and he is this oversized character who is going to be the opposition, and and we're going to have a madman that the the crew has to defeat. And the problem that great movie, one of my favorite movies of all time. But the problem is that it seems like now every Star Trek movie has one of those characters, and this movie reminded me again. The Borg are yes, there's a face to the Borg in the Borg Queen, but they are a force of nature. They are kind of like zombies. It is more like a horror movie, and I really liked that. I really liked that that what's happening on the on the Enterprise is an infestation. It's not a a, a, a madman's master plan. Blah. It's 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 something much more scary and insidious, and it's taking over crew members. Mm-hmm. I, and, I, I I like all of that, and it's not the master plan. They weren't expecting the Enterprise to follow them. This is totally improv. It's like, hey, as long as we're here, they are a force of nature, but they also are thinking and have a plan there you know they have a click so they stop assimilating at a certain deck because that's all they need at that point right. to get what they need so that makes mm. them even scarier if they were just you know mindlessly assimilating why everything. don't they keep coming exactly I, I felt dumb for not realizing you know even though i've seen this movie several times including in the theaters i felt dumb for never really drawing that zombie parallel and i guess maybe that's because at the time it felt like zombies were not as big a thing as they are now um you know the, with the constant like walking dead and everything like that but the, it, it really is such a great line. And of course, they call it out by uh, she. He describes them as cyborg zombies to Lily at one point. Mm. Um, but it, it is really good. Like the, the assimilation rights right down to like, don't let them touch you. Don't let them bite you. Right. Like you'll be infected. Um, you know, and that aspect of it in mirroring the horror movie part of it, I think, is is very, very clever and very savvy. And they take a lot of cues from that genre. And they, they really they assimilate to that genre pretty well into this movie. <laughs> oh. Say so one thing I like about the Borg as the villains that it's an interesting twist i think on some of the core premises of star trek which is that you know it's a it's a series devoted to you know exploration the idea that we can meet alien species other intelligent beings and um work with them and cooperate with them and the borg should have raised the question what if you encounter something that is profoundly alien right that isn't that 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 does not come close to perceiving the world in any way like you do that has its own um own sort of like i'm trying to think of the word like ideology that is per almost profoundly anti-life um does not fit what do you do with something like that that, that does not fit with your sense of what um what ought to be and uh i, I don't know i just like i like how that how that profound alienness acts as sort of like a challenge to sort of, I mean, it's, this is one of the threads of the movie. Like it's not just Picard's PTSD here, but in a real way, um, the Borg act as sort of like a, you know, you think you could have this federation, but here's something that just will not fit. Well, I mean, it's, it's multiculturalism versus assimilation. If you want to boil it down, right? Because these are both, the federation is all about finding new worlds and new people and bringing them into their happy kind of community. And the Borg are about finding new worlds and finding new people and taking what they want from them and incorporating it into a single assimilated whole, which is not to go too far down this 
path. But I mean, on some ways they're diametric, diametrically opposed, and in some ways they're kind of similar. And that that's kind of interesting too. Like I love that the Borg Queen, who is the representation, I think it's a very smart decision by the screenplay, by the way, to have a a character who is a representation of the Borg Collective, because otherwise they're kind of totally faceless. But she makes this argument, right? Like, what do you mean, Data? We we go find the best stuff, and we are we are trying to achieve perfection by picking the best of everybody and creating the one perfect life form in the galaxy. There's a way, there's an odd way in which this, uh, the Borg Queen in that conceit is in dialogue with Star Trek VI um, uh, and sort hmm. of the, the conversation early on in that movie among the Klingons about the Federation as this, as this uh, project that will wipe away Klingon cultural distinctiveness. Mm. That yeah. the Klingons will lose some essence of who they are in joining up or even even beginning the process of joining up with the Federation. I don't know how intentional that is. And given that Ron Moore um, was a co-writer on this, I have a feeling that it probably was a little intentional. Mm-hmm. But there is yes. definitely some dialogue in those ideas. It explains a lot about Klexit, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you look closely at, at some of the Borg in the background throughout this film – you know they had they had way more budget and way more time to do the makeup so instead of just being a bunch of humanoid looking borg if you look closely there are klingon borg and you know romulans yeah. and vulcans and bolians and you mm-hmm. know they they took the time to rethink how they looked and make all those different aliens into borg too which you know very subtle thing and it was quite the boon for the Borg expansion set of the Star Trek customizable card game. <laughs> just say it. Just, just had to out-nerd us all. So John Syracuse and I every now and then talk about what, whether things are robots or not. And at one point, he and I had a, a, a wacky conversation where we were talking about if you took a robot and added organic things, would it, would it come to become a cyborg from the other direction? Which is kind of what the Borg Queen's trying to do to Data here. But I think that's fascinating that the Borg, so many stories I think we, we see in Star Trek and in other science fiction are about uh, computer intelligences, machine intelligence, V'gers and things like that that are saying we're going to perform affect everything by being logical and and making everything into a computer. And the Borg isn't like that. It's actually one of the things that I find fascinating about the Borg is the Borg believes that the ultimate perfection in life is a synthesis of, of uh, organic life and machinery. And so data is intriguing to them, but also still kind of offensive to them because Data is just a machine. Data is a failure. I mean, and Data would say this too, right? Data wants to be more human. And, and, and the Borg's perspective is, yeah, you do need to be more human because machines are just as bad as pure organics. As, as we were watching earlier, uh, the kids both went, we, we don't want to know where they got the skin for Data, do we? <laughs> I said, no, you really don't. The Borg always have a lot of skin. Data implies that they grew it or something like that. But yeah, we don't, we don't. One of the things that makes the Borg so uh, effective is that they take familiar things and they make them unfamiliar, right? So they're assimilating the Enterprise and they have that, there's a great scene where they go from the normal corridor, you know, in the early in the movie when they figure out that the Borg are on the Enterprise and they're walking down a corridor and then suddenly, you know, they turn 
uh, a corner, and it's the same corridor, except it's Borgified, uh, and so now suddenly it's an alien space. Uh, but yet there's that underlying familiarity of it, so that makes it creepy. And then, of course, they assimilate people you know and change the way they look. Uh, Data's look changes because they graft all the skin onto him. Uh, that shot where they show that the Earth has been assimilated, it's a very familiar shot of the Earth, but it's slightly different, so it's very, very effective. It's like a literal nightmare, you know, when you have those dreams where it's like, I was in my house, but it's not my house, mm-hmm. and someone was there, yeah. but they weren't that person, and that's exactly... That's zombies and body horror, and I mean, it's all kind of wrapped together, I think. And the other thoughts about the the Borg and the Borg Queen, I really like Alice Creek here. I love the shot where she comes down from the rafters, and it's just the top oh, it's part so of her. Fun. Because that, that, that says it all, right? That says, this is not a person, right? This is not a human person, anyway. Mm-hmm. This is something very different, and, and it's, just a, it's just a great moment. Uh, I love it. And she, and she gets in her little outfit and then just starts to walk. It's like even now I like I love that shot and I, li- I like really like this character too and I agree I, my, my question I guess for the rest of you I'm kind of curious like coming into this from you know your experiences with the Borg in the series did this seem like does it seem really unborg like i mean they they have a data gets a nice shot off where he's like oh you can't be an individual because that's not what the borg are and she's like well you know sort of um <laughs> it's but it's a, it's a weird it's not something we've really seen that much of from the borg we do have like hugh early on and stuff like that right where we have semi individuals and of course later we have seven of nine on voyager um but it seems it's an interesting choice because it, it does put a face on what's otherwise this gigantic monolithic bad guy Uh, and i was curious to know if you guys felt like that was a that was an odd choice or no i think it's a really good choice especially going forward on voyager like a lot of the the best episodes of season six and seven are all about the board queen and you know jason you're talking about liking the shot where um you know she comes down like they you can see the the special version of it like with the special effect shot where they're they have her on a crane and they're they're lowering her down well voyager had a shot that i think even um it, it surpasses that and it's of her entire body being put together from scratch and it's really really awesome it's probably the the best technical moment of voyager special effects so i think i i really like it because i think she does kind of um she gives you know conflict in science fiction like it's it's basically about mirroring human emotion right so i think when it's more amorphous i think it's really hard to get at the heart of that that said i think the the biggest flaw at least to me in first contact is you know the data board queen subplot i think it is a little bit maudlin i think star trek tends to um you know go down the road of someone that wants to be human just about two or three times too many and it's just um it, it didn't really land for me and i think it's because you know brett spiner's acting just can't compete with the other people in the movie to be honest I disagree on okay. a bunch of different okay. levels, <laughs> but because uh, the the I know the Voyager scene you're talking about, I don't feel like it holds up as well as the uh, shot in First Contact because this is mostly photographic with like paintwork and like I don't know elastic reality or whatever they use for the morphing uh, that uh, pulls off this effect. It's not as complex or as intricate conceptually, um, but I, I feel it like it winds up looking better uh, over the years um, uh, because the other one was just kind of a little shiny if you go back and, and, and watch it. But uh, th- this this works out well for me. Um, and I I do like Brent's acting off of her. Uh, there are a couple scenes where he's, he's hitting it a little hard. But uh, it's, 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 it's nice to have this sort of unusual seduction 
um, compared to, I feel like, some of the more typical Star Trek romances that uh, we see play out. Because um, this is very alien uh, on many levels uh, to, to, to watch these, these two interact, uh, as, as opposed to uh, you know, some of the more traditional things of, of, of different characters trying to appeal to one another in order to accomplish their goals. And the, you know, one might be a different alien race or something, but it mainly comes down to like pointed ears. Uh, and, and this it is, it is something other entirely. There are moments where I think, especially toward the end, where Brent Spiner doesn't do as good a job. But I think the, the when they're doing their Goldfinger kind of number there, and he keeps saying things like, "like uh, that seems that's an interesting story," but I don't think I believe it. Right? I mean, he's very skeptical. I really like all of that. Um, later, later, it's maybe not as strong, but I, I, I do like that because of the temptations of the flesh that she's offering to Data. I feel like that that's just like laying it out there as plain as day of like organic life is something that we can provide to you. You can be more than you are. And that's what he's told us for seven seasons that he always wanted. And, and it also sets up the question of like, is he going to be tempted? Which we find out later he was tempted for six tenths of a second, which is an eternity for androids. Uh, so I, I do ultimately, I, I really like those scenes. Although I think that maybe they're, they're not toward the end. They're not quite as well put together. But I, I remember watching it with my father and his immediate reaction to the Borg Queen was, oh, no, no, there are no individuals. No, no, no. And I thought, well, all right, that's, you know, that makes sense. But the more I thought about it, and I and I got him to watch it again, what's the one thing we know about the Borg? They adapt. What do they do when, when they're firing their weapons? They adapt to, you know, they add their shields. They, they have to keep shifting frequencies. They do all these things. This is just an adaptation. This is what they have to do to conquer Earth and to conquer humanity. And I thought there was, you know, it's not obvious. They don't, they don't like hold up a sign and go, see, here's what we're doing. But I thought that worked really well. And then I liked where it developed into Voyager. She, she's not over explained here either, right? Yeah, she basically, yeah. I, I, I like that she's, she's like, well, you know, there. the Borgs are individuals. And she's like, it's complicated. You don't understand how complicated <laughs> we are. And, yeah, and I like yeah, that. It's like humans, true. you don't get, you, you think you know the Borg, but we are way more complex than that. And then they don't go into it. And I, I like that because it's like, yeah, okay, I could buy that. And we've already seen Locutus, right? We gave, we took a person, gave them a name while they were assimilated. It's like, okay, the Borg will do what they want to do and if they are a hive mind sort of having a queen bee makes sense so and and you know and what we get then is a spokesperson for the borg which is really what we need in order for the borg to be a little more than faceless automatons which is what they were kind of the next generation i like that scene with picard and the borg queen where he's like but the ship i i remember when i was locutus i remember you but that ship was blown up and she looks at him with disdain and says you think in such three-dimensional terms because uh, <laughs> that body is, is you know her that body is not her she is an individual individual kind of but she's also a part of the collective so that body just appears wherever she needs it to be because she is where the borg is because she is borg it's like the trinity people i mean even when they named him locutus they they did make it pretty clear that they named him that because they felt they needed a spokesman they needed someone to communicate yeah so it makes sense to me and i like the idea that it's that you know she's she's not an individual who runs the Borg. She is the body that they have created in order to represent, the, you know, the Borg in conversation. First, first among equals. You could say that she's the devil that they needed for Data in some ways, right? Since to tempt Data, that may be why she is there, is because they that, that's you know 
she's required at that point. It's not like they it's not like they say, "Oh well, she's going to start the new hive here on Earth after we kill everybody and we've got a whole plan to do all of that." It's like they don't go into that, which I really like. They just leave it. It's complicated. It's more than three-dimensional. You humans wouldn't understand right. us. And another well. moment I like is when uh, the disruptor dish, like they get the, the the dish off and that plan has stopped and there's a moment she looks up and she obviously realizes what has happened because she is the Borg, so she knows what everything is going on. And she says, change of plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because still a villain, and and but yeah, a, a collective villain. It's good. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Alice Creek does a good job. It's a, it's oh, a good yeah. performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This movie is so well cast. You know, it is. It's it's not nothing against some of the other casts, but everyone, even the smallest parts, are really nicely cast, and and especially you know Alfre Woodard and James Cromwell and and Alice Krieg. Come on, yeah, I know. Neil McDonough, he dies well. Um, <laughs> um, let's talk about Zephram Cochran. So down on the planet, down on Earth, I keep calling it the planet, but it's Earth. It's 21st, mid-21st century Earth. Not that far from now. We've got a third world war to learn to live through. So As we know from Star Trek, the late 20th and early 21st centuries had World War Three. It was That's very right. bad. We've survived their eugenic wars already, so... We're doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so down in Montana in an old uh, nuclear missile silo, uh, Zephram Cochran, uh, who is this character who was mentioned and 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 shown sort of in his secret uh, post faking his death life, uh, being a very different kind of guy. But hey, it was a long time later. Uh, but they, he was always supposed to be the man who invented the warp drive. So here we see it. He is a hard drinking scientist who enjoys rockabilly on a jukebox. <laughs> okay, who <doesn't? laughs> so sure. good. So good. It's, Rockabilly is best on a jukebox. I really like his coat, by the way. In fact, his whole <laughs> his outfit, fur, the whole is wardrobe. Really, it's a giant winner for me, especially compared to Picard's space cardigan, which I find pretty lame. Yeah, <laughs> he's got a ju- he's got like a Jughead hat. Yeah, <laughs> I liked Picard's twenty first century Earth outfit. The pants, those pants the... are amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we we get Zephyr Cochran down here, and he he's. Uh, and uh, he's we meet him and he's with uh, talking to Lily. But then there's a there's an attack and, and by the Borg and, and uh, Lily has to be taken back to the ship. So Cochran is down there essentially with Riker and Troy and then uh, an engineering team that's going to help uh, fix the damage to his ship so that he can take off the next day. And that's that's the you could see that kind of storyline, right, where there's a uh, there's a technical story about fixing the ship. But one of the things that this movie does so well is that's not what this whole segment is about. It's about Zephram Cochran as a character, which, first off, kind of a big deal for a Star Trek movie to spend so much time on a character arc of somebody who's not one of the seven regular characters, but it's really good because it's, what if somebody told you that you were one of the most famous people in history and what you were about to do was going to change everything and then you feel the weight of history pressing down on you? And that's what happens to Zephram Cochran here. Um, they're funny. There's there's a lot of funny stuff, too. I really like the, the stuff with Riker and Troy, I feel like Jonathan Frakes is never better as Riker than he is in the scene where he finds Absolutely. Troy drunk at the bar. Yep, that was, the, that's a the great smile. Scene. The sm- not even just the smile on his face, but the smile in his eyes is perfect. Yeah, Lavar Le- Burton gets to go full reading Rainbow at one point, talking about the statue. <laughs> yes, don't take my word for it. <laughs> He's got a very specific like diction and cadence there, and I kept thinking, oh my god, it's a reading Rainbow episode. But my mm-hmm. note for this part mainly just reads, "Don't meet your heroes." <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do love the part where Jordy says, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I went to Zephyrin Cochran High School. Well, there, there's that moment later where, where, where Riker says to Jordy, you told him about the statue? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, don't. Yeah. Just because he runs off at one point and is drinking in the in the wilderness and is going to try to hide from them because he just can't take it anymore. Barkley, of course, uh, wants his autograph, essentially. Uh, but I, I really like that, that he is not, uh, he's kind of a strange guy who's building a spaceship out of a nuclear missile complex on his own. He's figured out warp drive. And uh, it's fine when it's just him and his friends messing around and trying to build this thing but then when he when he sees the history of it um he he has a hard time living up to it and i just i really enjoy all of these parts i think james cromwell does a great job with this mm-hmm. character and um i and you know there's a funny moment when they launch and he and, and they're worried they have to abort the launch because he can't find his, the thing that's important oh. and it's because he wants to play magic carpet ride while they launch into space <laughs> off his sony mini disc it's not quite uh the beastie boys references <laughs> What I like about it is that after we've spent this too much time with Zephram Cochran, do we really doubt that he's got a song picked out? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. James Cromwell is one of those actors. I grew up watching him. uh, You know, he was one of those. It's that guy. In you know he was Stretch Cunningham on All in the Family. He was on like, he was like five different people on Barney Miller and really until you know, he was in Babe. No, he yeah. was just a hey, it's that guy, right? Yeah, Babe and L.A. Confidential and those two. I think two. that uh, Joe linked to the uh, the Roger Ebert review of First Contact, which which uh, which calls him James Cromwell, the tall farmer from Babe, and I was like, yeah, that's also where, <laughs> that's basically where I knew him from. <laughs> But I was like, you know, he's just this funny guy who appears on 70s sitcoms and and oh, he's so good in this. Yeah. And the comedy scenes on Earth, especially with Zephram Cochran interacting with all of the the other cast and crew, we we get history. If you don't if you're not that familiar with Star Trek, but you also get uh, a moment to release some of the tension that builds up in the action scenes that are happening on the Enterprise. So whenever we cut back to this, we can we can sort of like reset a little and calm back down and then we can go back to that and the actions can start to build up again, which is something that doesn't happen very often where you're just leaping from one zero gravity scene to another zero gravity scene and back o- along the the you know, gravity current eddy thing towards the thing to release the switch to the lever to the whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so there there's there's none of the uh, having this comedy helps uh, the story structurally too, because you can you can sort of relax and then get comfortable again, and it's not just a constant barrage of of action piece over action piece. Yeah, again, again, it's it's that balance and economy. They they trust the audience to go with them. They trust the audience not to explain so many things. And it's delightful. I think that it's a good use. I, I, I praised Jonathan Frakes' performance, directing himself here. But I think given how much time he spent with Marina Sirtis um, in making the original uh, Next Generation series, she she's good here, too. And I'm not a big fan of Troy, but I think that she – this is the best Troy that she is – you know, they, she, yeah, she's got funny drunk things, which, you know, when Riker says you're drunk, it's like, she's so drunk. What you, you shouldn't even have to say it. But, but I you am know, not. Well, why does she have that job? It's like she knows people. She's like, uh, she, she's like, she is a counselor. She knows people. She's the one you send in there to talk to this guy. And, and like all of her scenes, I think, are very good. And I'm not a fan of Troy and the next generation very much. I, I, I think that she was badly used. But here, um, she really gets room to shine. And I think she's really 
really good. I think LeVar Burton is good here because yeah. what we're seeing is Jordy doing his job, right? He's like, I get to fix this ship that I learned about in school. That's <laughs> awesome. And he's instructing engineers to do all of his stuff, and that's good, too. I, I love Jordy. He's one of my favorite characters. I feel like he gets ill-served in a lot of Next Generation episodes, and this is a really good use of him. Troy, as well, I, I like you. I'm not a huge fan of her, but I, I think she does really well here, and we see the chemistry between her and Riker, which a lot of times we get told about but don't necessarily experience or it's melodramatic and over the top whereas this one seems like oh yeah these are two long friends slash sometimes partners who you know clearly right. have a rapport with each other um and and i think even the drunk thing is funny to me because i remember watching this as a 16 year old and thinking wow one of the the next generation crewers getting drunk this is so like so wrong you know <laughs> like so weird right like yeah scandalous good word well gene was dead by then so it's okay <laughs> What else to to talk about here? I I don't have a lot of uh, other notes. These are the three these are the three categories. I think at the end when the stories come together is pretty good. We see the shadow of this of the Enterprise E on the controls on the Phoenix, which is the warp ship, and they say, "Oh, I'm sure they're just here to give us a send off." But meanwhile, Data is targeting them with quantum torpedoes, and it's a it's a a very exciting moment. And uh, and then we discover, of course, Data isn't betraying uh, them. He's gonna he's gonna miss. They're gonna make their work jump and uh i will say maybe having a, a volatile material that will destroy <laughs> all organic material one bump from a, a phaser rifle away from killing everybody in engineering might be a design flaw but it's it good that it doesn't today. rise though right like it doesn't go up yeah. that's nice it it's just hangs heavy. out on the floor it's the advantage of using some really questionable 90s CG volumetric <laughs> stuff. I, I mean, I think that might just be sprites. I'm not even yeah. sure it's volumetric. Uh, yeah. but it, it, it looks it looks decidedly not realistic in any in any capacity. It's not yeah. good. I, I had a couple of random notes, one which was, I love when Riker tries to explain to Cochran, you know, and Cochran sort of repeats back to him, like, okay, this is what you're telling me. There's a bunch of, like, robots from the future trying to come back and stop us. I'm like, he literally just described Terminator. Terminator. <laughs> well, did you see the Borg Queen at the end? She's the Terminator. Yeah, she's, no, she is the Terminator. It's, it's exactly, I have very Terminator head written in my notes as well. Yeah. Um, I Also, that Jonathan Franks must have a kink in his neck from looking up at James Cromwell for this entire movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's a big man himself. And, uh, oh, yeah, Patrick Stewart, super ripped. Good for Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it, isn't kind of depressing to think that like i i wish i could have like told myself in you know 1996 when i saw this so like brianna every single star trek movie you see from here on out is not gonna be as good as this like (laughs) that's really depressing like 2009 came close but you know i don't think we've had a a truly great star trek movie since then and i i'd like to see us have one i wanted to mention the music for a minute because this is jerry goldsmith working um with his son joel and uh, what I love about it is, of course, Jerry Goldsmith did the Next Generation theme when it was the Star Trek The Motion Picture theme. And so we get that here. And I like that it's sort of the, the ni- a nice uniting of the guy who wrote the music for the show and the people who are actually from we, that show We also together. get the uh, motion picture the uh, Klingon, Klingon theme. theme for Worf, oh. which is great. And the first contact theme is fantastic. I found myself wandering around just like whistling it to myself after watching the movie. And 
there's a nice Borg theme too, which is that one yeah. that's almost like the 2001 yeah. uh, notes in a different, weird, different key with some weird electronic on top of it. But we see, we hear that when the Borg appear uh, throughout. So I, I really actually like the score a lot because of the nostalgia and also because of the the original stuff that's in the movie. I think it's pretty good. I mean, there's a reason Goldsmith is a is a legend. I mean, I went and ripped this a couple of days ago to listen to it again because I own a CD of it from from 1996, um, which is the only place you can get CDs these days. Uh, and it's really, <laughs> it's really, it's it's great. It's a great score. I wish there, were, I wish uh, there were more cues on the soundtrack, but um, it's it's really solid. And, and Goldsmith does elevate this in a way that a lot of the you know the TV stuff. It's very different writing music for you know seven series seven seasons of a TV show than it is for writing for a feature film. And you know Jerry Goldsmith once again displays why he is an amazing amazing score yeah i think that's also one of the things that for me kind of hurt generations is the score uh by dennis mccarthy uh does not have the very familiar theme that you heard in every single opening of every single star trek the next generation episode uh so that 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 theme from the original motion picture was completely absent from uh, that that episode. Uh, I'm sorry, that movie. Although it's kind of an episode, let's be episode, honest. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. the uh, <laughs> but but this movie uh, has it, and he would go on to score all, all of the remaining Next Generation movies, all, all three of these. Uh, and I have to say that First Contact is my favorite of them. There are some action cues that I like in Insurrection, but this one really holds together very well, um, and is quite possibly my favorite of the three uh nemesis is just like a disaster uh unfortunately it, on and, all levels yeah I, I i think he was probably given some bad direction by the director or something but the, that soundtrack is they not all as were great yeah. <laughs> there, there there is no aspect of that movie that wasn't given bad direction but the, the that's one of the things that i really love about first contact and I, i've lost my original cd so i can't i can't uh boot up a 90s operating system to access the digital extras that are still on it <laughs> so i'm going to go around uh the panel and ask uh for some f- sort of final thoughts overall about how you feel about first contact and the t- the hard question which is where does it rank where does it rank in star trek movies where would you where would you put it i'm curious about that so uh, let me start with with Bree since she sort of started down this path and saying that we haven't seen its like since. Where Bree, overall thoughts about First Contact and where would you rank it? Well, I think it's it's the third uh, second best Star Trek movie, right? Like Wrath of Khan is definitely the best one. I think it has the best merit. Uh, I think the Shat really pulled it together mm-hmm. for that film and really delivered an extremely powerful performance. Um, but you know, I I think this is a movie that really comes close, uh, really really close. And I think it's the the best moment that you know generation um, the next generation staff had together. So. Um, I, I guess I would say I always watch this movie and I am a little bit sad because this was a time period where we were talking about perhaps getting, you know, a Voyager movie made and wasn't really clear where, um, you were, we were going to go after, uh, Next Generation had their shot. And, you know, like you guys are laughing at the doctor and, you know, Janeway's small cameo, but to me, it's like, um, I don't know, like this was the one, the last chance that we we really had to see that crew on the big screen and we never did. So it's always a little bittersweet for me. Joe, what about you? Where does this movie uh, rank overall and what are your overall thoughts about it? I love this movie. Uh, I have a hard time ranking it 
exactly with everything. Um, I, I kind of toss it back and forth uh, between a couple because I, I do think that Wrath of Khan is my favorite, but there are some things about it that are, in terms of filmmaking are a little dated, um, unfortunately. Uh, I, I still love it, um, so no one send me an angry letter. Uh, but <laughs> it, the same kind of goes for, for Star Trek IV, which I also love. I also, I also love that movie. Uh, Star Trek VI, I really do love a lot, but I think First Contact might be above either six or voyage home depending on my mood um Ooh. but but that, that's where i would i would i would rank them and i i think this might be definitely the most cinematic uh version of the next generation you're going to see it is on the big screen for four movies but this is this is the movie uh, uh mm. of this cast Jamel, what do you? Uh, what's your overall thought about this, and where do you slot it in the canon? So I think I, I think I may be on the younger end of the group here, and the Next Generation as a series was very much like my trek. It's a trek I grew up watching with my family, and the Next Gen and the First Contact um, has a sort of special place in my um, in my movie viewing life. It's sort of a movie I saw when I was a kid, and is still you know pretty important to me. And I, I love it on this very kind of um, emotional level. Uh, and it is one of my favorite treks. I, I, I think I would place it third with my favorite being um, Undiscovered Country, uh, followed by Wrath of Khan, and then First Contact. I want to sort of go to something Bree said, which yeah. was um, <clears throat> her, her view that... Um, this was sort of the last great Trek movie. And I've been kind of trying to think about like why that might have been. And I, and my answer, the answer I have for myself at least is that I think it's sort of after the next generation. And this may just reflect larger trends in Hollywood that, um, Trek movies just became another you know, species of action film and the willing, the willingness to kind of approach different kinds of genres within the Trek world went away. Right. So like undiscovered country is basically a procedural, like that is, that is what that film is. It's a procedural that happens within the Trek universe, trying to answer a central mystery. Um, first contact is, I think in a lot of ways, a horror movie, um, with some, you know, kind of fish out of water comedy thrown in, uh, to give it some levity. Um, but, but since then we just haven't, I, I don't think there's been a real willingness, whether for market reasons or just for, you know, lack of creativity to really use Trek as like an umbrella for, you know, exploring these characters in this world, um, in, 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 in using different genres. And I don't know if we're gonna, um, get that back. And it's sort of why I kind of think that, um, the best place for Trek really is television. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure movies ultimately or, or feature films ultimately, um, are, are, are well suited for what I think makes Trek Trek. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth. And we've talked about that on past episodes too, that Star Trek on TV is, it is a TV franchise ultimately. And there are some good movies too, but it, it seems to be the best. I did see a story at one point about how, I mean, Paramount is basically, 
in it, it was in chaos and now it's in double chaos um, <laughs> given all the ownership issues but I did see a story about the idea of what what if they like everybody they're like what if we follow from Marvel's example and do a, a bunch of movies in the Star Trek universe that tell different stories and I thought that might work I don't know if it would but it might work at least in that you would have the freedom to not have one movie every three years that had to be a huge action tentpole movie because you were making a bunch of different small maybe a little bit smaller movies um in corners of the universe but i don't know how realistic that is in today's feature film business versus putting it on tv which is what cbs is doing with star trek discovery star trek seems like a perfect fit for netflix to me but you know bless moonvis wants his money (laughs) (laughs) it's it's netflix and the rest of the world if that makes you feel any better yeah it is it's a netflix show everywhere but here uh david what what are your overall thoughts about first contact and where do you rank it uh well you know i love it when when i saw it it's one of the few few movies i saw twice the opening weekend um and it I would put it right up there with Wrath of Khan, you know, and, and only like by a couple of degrees, it's like that close for me. Uh, it, it's just, it, the storytelling is so streamlined. And so, I mean, it, it, this is a, this is the next generation firing on all cylinders. Right. Mm. And I remember walking out of it very hopeful for where they were going to go because they were all still pretty young and you know and i i i know some fans are not crazy about brandon braga after a while but i like braga and more when they're working together i forgive them for generations yeah to have the promise of future next generation movies followed up with insurrection and nemesis was just crushing and and even you know again just watching it recently for this uh, it's the same excitement it's like i want to see more with them doing big things and there are two other things that I can watch them doing big things, but I don't want to watch them again. Um, and I, you know, I've said it before. I kind of like Insurrection. It's it's still, it's like maybe mid-range for me. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not Nemesis. God knows. Um, but yeah, I just, I really like First Contact. I love that it allows the characters to have dimension that they don't get to have in any of the other movies. Mm. And you get to see them doing things that they don't do all the time except maybe Worf because Worf is Worf a lot of a uh, lot of bittersweetness when we think about what happened after this movie it's really sad Dan <laughs> Dan uh, your your final thoughts and, and ranking for First Contact yeah it's a uh, it's a damn shame that we only got we have four movies and only one of them was like really tremendously good I do have a soft spot for Generations but I you know it's not nearly as good as First Contact yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really like First Contact I haven't watched it in many years and so I was kind of trepidatious when I sat down to watch it wondering if it, it held up and and by gosh it did i really enjoyed it i was not bored for a single moment um i i really felt very engaged and and it was, it was just as good as i remember seeing it in the movie theater so uh, i feel good about that although to you know to Bree's point and jamel's point about you know as a tv series i think um i think that's there's something to be said for that it is really hard i mean the 90s were a were the sort of the the birth of the big blockbuster action movie and and as a teenager in that era i went and saw a bunch of them so i guess i'm part of the problem um but i never got i never got my i never got my ds9 movie either so you know there's there's that i guess i i suffered through that as well um as far as overall ranking i think i'm probably on on in club joe here um i i it's hard for me to put a ranking on them um wrath of khan obviously has a lot going for it and is it is a 
um, you know, a technical masterpiece, I think. Like Jamel, I, I grew up with TNG, and, and so these guys are, are more like my crew than the original series crew was. Um, and I certainly, you know, watched a lot more Next Generation before I saw any of the original series or much of the original series. So I, I kind of put this up there with them, but it's, it's also a little bit apples and oranges. I do love four and six just because of their their respective natures four is a great comedy showpiece um and six just because it's it's a thriller it's a great great fun to watch thriller um very popcorny without being too ridiculous like blockbuster action movie so you know those are the, those are i think the four star trek movies that i would gladly watch at any time um no matter what so i, I i'm okay putting them all in a little pool together right scott it's down to you now what are your thoughts about First Contact and where it rates? Well, I, I will echo many sentiments. I, I love <laughs> First Contact. I do hate the opening credits, though. Yeah, they're so uh, bad. Uh, they're so bland. It, they are awful, and I don't know why they're there. They should. I had a note them. about most generic titles ever. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's some contractual thing to have awful opening credits or something, but I just don't like them. <laughs> uh, and it's it's the, so the sad. Font. Be- What's right, with the font? The opening scene is so great, but the credits are just, oh, they're awful. Uh, but anyway, that's a, <laughs> the generation's credits are better. You know, you get to follow that champagne bottle. There's you don't know bottle, what it is yeah. at the beginning. You're like, what the heck? And then you're like, oh, it's a champagne bottle. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, clearly First Contact is the third best Star Trek movie. Uh, <laughs> there is no <laughs> doubt about it. Uh, Wrath of Khan, uh, The Undiscovered Country, First Contact. Uh, probably then uh, Star Trek Four, and then pr- Star Trek uh, Two Thousand Nine reboot probably mm. would be mm. my my rankings. Um, beyond, oh, you would put Beyond <laughs> before Two Thousand Nine. I, oh, I like Beyond. I'm just, I'm just trolling. I'm just trolling. Oh <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> I thought Scott was going to go uh, left field and say like, and then Star Trek Five. You know, <laughs> of course. <Star> Trek. <laughs> what does God need with a starship? Not in front of the Klingons. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, and, and there's just so much that I like about First Contact. Uh, I can't think of anything other than the opening credits that I don't like about First Contact. Uh, so I mean, kudos to everyone involved. Uh, and I mean, I, I, you know, as everyone said, the next generation movies afterwards, not very good. I do like Generations, so, um, it's not nearly as good as First Contact, but I do like it. I like seeing William Shatner trotting around on a horse for no apparent reason. Uh, how, making eggs. Well, making eggs. Uh, looking at a clock. You know, Guinan is in Generation, so it's, it has its its moments. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, First Contact. Uh, if they would have made uh, more First Contacts, I would just keep watching them. But sadly, yeah. they didn't. They didn't. They didn't do that. Well, I, I agree with what everybody said. This is this is a great movie. I was reminded about how great it is. I I, I love it a lot. I think I would probably say there have only been two legitimately great Star Trek movies, and that they are Wrath of Khan and First Contact. And when I hear people running down the Next Generation movies, I have this moment where I'm like, y- "You've seen First Contact?" Because it's really good. Like it's a, re- and it's not the Wrath of Khan being replayed. It's a really good movie on its own. And um, so I, I think those that's number one. And and Wrath of Khan is one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of all time. But First Contact is, I think, very clearly uh, in that same in that same category as a truly great Star Trek movie. And then, yeah, we can, we can argue about what goes below that. I think maybe I'd put 2009, uh, third, but yeah, you know, I would too. I would it's, too. uh, there's, 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 there's good, 
Star Trek and there's bad Star Trek. We've established this. This is good <laughs> Star Trek. It's sad what happened afterward, but this oh. is good Star Trek. And in fact, it makes me really feel nostalgic for the next generation. I grew up yeah. with original yeah. series as a kid. I don't remember not knowing about the original Star Trek. And the next generation was the show I became a fan of because I was, in a, I was a, a high school and college student when it was on. So I was deep down into my excitement as a, as a sci-fi fan for next generation. And I see this movie and I think this is how great that cast was and how great that show was it validates that in a strange way that like the original series got these good movies what about the next generation and here it here it is like see what they can do when all the things are right see what this cast can do we also got all the uh we got all the tos reunion and like you know them coming back years after the show i kind of want the tng reunion now where they we, we get the I know. band back together I know one yeah. last time right yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I don't think it's to be, but I would, I would I know, love to see. I uh, I'd love to see Patrick Stewart as Picard <laughs> one last time. It would be great. And you know, say what you will about the first couple of seasons of Next Generation, or or the first couple of seasons of well, any of them, uh, but they were all really well cast, and yeah. the characters, uh, even in the worst episodes, the characters were enough to get you through sometimes. And this is, you talk about the, the reunion, which is essentially what those Star Trek movies were, um, the original Star Trek movies. That's, that's actually one of the power, powerful things about this is that th- these, this is the team basically at the top of their game. This isn't 15 years after they were on TV yeah. coming back and talking about aging. This is the team doing their thing. And you can imagine that they've been out on missions in that enterprise E for a while now. And who knows what they were. We didn't get to see them, but, uh, that's, that's really cool too. So it's just, it's, yeah, I love it. I want to give it a big hug, except uh, <laughs> then I just, I get turned into a Borg. It would be bad. Don't let so them I touch won't. you, Jason. Don't, Don't let them touch you. No, no. I'll just tell them to assimilate this. Uh, anyway, so happy 50th anniversary to Star Trek, and here's to another 50, and here's to a new t- Star Trek TV sh- series in 2017. I think we're all looking forward to some Star Trek on TV, maybe where it belongs, but um, but 50 years, what a, what a milestone. So let me thank my panel for coming in and, and sharing some happy thoughts about a, a good movie that is very good, and you should like it, and you should watch it again. Uh, Dan Morin, thanks for being here. Uh, live long and prosper, Jason. David Lore, thank you. Thank you. Uh, all I will say is definitely not Swedish. Not Swedish. Scott McNulty, you broke your little ships. <laughs> I, I did, actually. There's one of them on my desk that is broken. Uh, <laughs> the important lesson that we learned from this movie, Borg have very bad eyesight. <laughs> yeah, they just don't care. They're really just kind of listless, and uh, they just don't care. Jamel Bowie, thank you so much for being on The Incomparable. It was great to have you. I hope we can talk Star Trek with you again sometime. My pleasure. Today was a good day to talk about a movie. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Somewhere on the defiant, Adam Scott is breathing a sigh of relief right now. Brianna Wu, thank you, as always. In transmission. And Joe, Joe Rosenstiel, thank you very much for being here. I would give you the Vulcan salute, but let's just handshake. Yeah. <laughs> and to everybody out there, thanks for listening to this episode. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to plug in my jukebox and crank up the rockabilly. We'll see you next week. Doopy doopy. <laughs> <laughs>